Uh, welcome to Pop Cultural Osmosis. I'm Kyle Diaz. And I'm Ryan Harrington. And our favorite this week is favorite web series. Um, Ryan, I have my suspicions about what you're going to pick, but why don't you uh, kick us off and we'll see where we go from there. Um, yeah, so I decided I think my favorite web series uh, good pick would be uh, Strong Bad Emails from HomestarRunner.com. I knew it. I was, that's uh, exactly what I was uh, thinking you were going to say. Yeah, mostly. Well, I kind of gave half of it away when we were talking beforehand. But, um, I mean, I followed uh, Strong Bad Emails mostly when I was in high school from, like, you know, the early and mid-2000s. And it's, like, I just checked it every week when it updated. And, like, the next day at school, me and my friends would just, like, be quoting everything from it. Um, I don't know. It was a lot of fun. And it was something that me and my friends found as a nice like in joke it is a very bizarre so it's basically like a guy named strong bad who oh yeah is, he's like kind of erasable and, and uh uh cantankerous and he wears a like mexican wrestling uh, yeah like a luchador mask and he um basically just answers random emails that he gets from people and i was always unclear about whether the emails were real emails or like whether the creators came up with them themselves do you know the answer to that like I feel like they've got, like, at least in the beginning, I feel like they were real emails. And I wouldn't be surprised if um, a lot of them, like, through whenever they finish the series, mm-hmm. much after, like, I stopped frequent frequenting uh, the site. Mm-hmm. I feel like they were real emails, because, like, the whole point was, at least, especially in the beginning, like, Strong Bad, you know, criticizes the uh, grammar and, like, syntax and spelling errors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he really makes fun of the people who are emailing him. Um, which was a lot of the the fun. Um, it was very reminiscent of, you know, like, Mystery Science Theater 3000 mm-hmm. or these other, like, riff tracks. These other, like, uh, like parody, not parody, like, uh, like, heckling mm-hmm. things that were very influential on, on me as uh growing up mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i mean obviously as the series went on um the strong bad emails cartoons got more elaborate and developed their own sort of in-universe plot lines like or mm-hmm. not plot lines but like recurring recurring themes and many shows within the show like teen girl squad mm-hmm. but i do I, I really would not be surprised if those were all genuine emails I uh, remember, because I also watched a lot of Strong Bad emails when I was a kid, um, and I remember showing it to my parents, and they them just, like, not getting it. Like, it was definitely, like, a thing that, like, adults did not understand. Like, <laughs> it's, it's pretty, it's like, it's, it's surreal humor that, you know, you kind of have to, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's absurdist. Ridiculously quotable. Like, I, to this day, like, almost kind of, like, um, I don't know, like, instinctually or something. Like, I still accidentally quote strong bad emails. um, And people have no idea what I'm talking about. Like, the other day I was leaving um, 
I was leaving my friend's apartment and he was like, thanks for coming over. And I was like, thanks for breaking into my house. Thanks for breaking my cow lamp. <laughs> and I like, did not understand <laughs> what I was talking about at all because it doesn't make any sense. Like, unless you, like, really watched a lot of strong bad emails, like, you do not understand, like, what what's up for who gods is. Like, <laughs> who gods? <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's a good web series. What's your favorite... Uh, favorite episode do you remember um i mean like i feel like my default answer is trogdor the burninator that's mm-hmm. really what like that was the one that my friend who got um showed to me to get me into the the series mm-hmm. so it has a special place in my heart mm-hmm. um one of my other favorites is the one where uh strong bad imagines that he's like a japanese anime character <laughs> Okay, so first of all, my head would have to be a little bean with real big eyes. Get rid of my thumbs, make me all shiny. My boots would be a whole lot cooler, like robot boots. And for some reason, I got blue hair. You gotta have blue hair. Then there's my mouth. Real tiny when it's closed. Ridiculously huge when it's open. Then you basically just put me in space and make me fly around in cool poses. <laughs> make those ridiculously tidy when they're closed. Ridiculously huge when they're open. <laughs> oh, you gotta have blue hair. You gotta have blue hair. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think looking at this list of the episodes, I'm pretty sure that most of my favorites came from the first, I don't know, maybe 60 to 65. Like, almost all the ones that I remember are from that time period. And then, then there's he, he gets a new computer every once in a while. Um, and so there's definitely some computers here that I do not recognize. So I think that I probably stopped watching at some point relatively early in the pro they, you know, they went to like 200 and 210 of these things. And I, I only recognize a couple. Um, right. I mean, I was looking at, um, the Wikipedia article on the website. They said that they were updating the show up until 2010. Oh, okay. It was far beyond when I, yeah, had, I don't know, just moved to other things. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> strong bad emails are really good. That's a very strong pick. Um, so, uh, just in the interest of having a different favorite, if, you know, maybe if, if you're going just in terms of like, you know, deep in your heart, like what you're most nostalgic for, strong bad might might very well be my favorite too. Um, but a more recent pick for me, um, last year I really really fell in love with a YouTube series called High Maintenance. Mm. It's a uh, it's a like an independently produced series. It's it's pretty low budget, um, and it's and that uh, you know maybe I think there's like twelve to fifteen episodes, and they're each about ten minutes long, um, and they basically follow the adventures of a New York um, weed delivery man as he goes around and talks to various clients at the various places that uh, he's uh, making deliveries. Um, it's funny. It's sad. It's like. Uh, kind of a good snapshot of the same kind of uh, 20-somethings to 30-somethings in Brooklyn that, you know, Girls is trying to capture and other shows like that. Um, And uh, I don't know. It's just really great. The the guy who plays the the weed dealer is very charismatic, and um, he has all kinds of... um, the, The... the people who who he meets each episode is like based around a particular person um so you know there'll be an episode called you know uh stevie and an episode called trixie and an episode called helen and stuff like that and, and those are the names of the people um that he's running into 
uh, and uh, they're they're quite uh, well sketched out characters. Um, they don't don't fall back on easy cliches or anything like that. We're so fucking stressed out. There's a mouse. Oh, we'll just set a trap, guys. That's the problem. There is a trap, and it's a blue trap, and the mouse is stuck in it, and it's screaming, and it's very clearly suffering. And we don't know what to do. You just kill it. No, it's inhumane. Well, it's not actually inhumane. I mean, we caught a mouse in a glue trap, and we didn't see it till a couple hours later, and then it chewed its fucking leg off like James Franco in that rock climbing movie, and it dragged itself off and expired in the dog dish. So it's like, might be more humane to kill it. No, this is not an apartment where things die. This is an apartment where things live. We do not torture in this apartment, and we do not kill. I mean, to be fair, we already gassed it, and it's, like, totally covered in Pam. That's, so, that sounds like torture. Yeah, too. I mean, it's it's doused in Pam, so I think maybe we should just kill it. Okay, fine. Will you do it? Yes, I will do it. So it's a pretty great series, and I think it's a very good example of... Um, yeah, I'm sure this thing is produced on, like, a really, really cheap budget, um, and it's kind of what I keep hoping is going to really explode in popularity. I don't think one of these has like really truly broken out um, yet to become something bigger than maybe like Husbands, which was Jane Espenson's uh, web series, or oh yeah, um, which is also pretty great, or something like. Uh, Mm, I guess uh, it would uh, Captain Horribly be considered a web series? Doctor Horrible. Doctor Horrible. Uh, yeah, I think. I so. guess it came out on iTunes. I guess right. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't remember how how each episode was initially released. Yeah, me neither. Um, but I, I keep I keep waiting for one of these to kind of like explode in popularity, and it hasn't quite happened yet. But I think that shows like High Maintenance show that it's coming kind of kind of closer it's like inching closer to like one of these having a truly kind of mainstream uh, level of success and so my life began junior lobby boy in training under the strict command of monsieur gustav h i began to realize that many of the hotel's most valued and distinguished guests came for him i love you i love you she was dynamite in the sack by the way she was 84 mm, i've had older i became his pupil and he was to be my counselor and guardian the police are here. Tell them I'll be right down. So, uh, you know, I'm on the record, probably on the podcast somewhere, or, or maybe just in person, as uh, I think a couple years ago, I, I was a staunch Wes Anderson non-fan. Right. Um, I did not like many of his earlier films. I was not a huge fan of Royal Tannenbaums. I was not a huge fan of uh, Rushmore. I was really not a fan of uh, Darjeeling Limited, um, and I kind of like Life Aquatic, but you know, not definitely wouldn't say it was kind of one of my like favorite movies ever. Um, and so, like, uh, very very soon after, I kind of like staked out this position. Wes Anderson made me look like an idiot by releasing what I would consider to be three kind of masterpieces in a row <laughs> fantastic <laughs> mr fox is an amazing film that i love uh, moonrise kingdom is an amazing film that i love and uh, i really enjoy the uh his newest work uh, grand budapest hotel which is um the story of kind of an uh uh well it's kind of wrapped in layers um it is it's, yeah it, it mostly set 
1968 and 1932. And in 1968, a writer is um, kind of listening to a story told by the aging proprietor of the hotel who's telling him about kind of its heyday in the 1930s and uh, the the uh, concierge of the hotel at that time, uh, Monsieur Gustave. Um, and um, I just thought it was a really lovely, beautiful, sad... Um, funny like it was everything that a a Wes Anderson film uh, everything that a a film period should be um and so I was kind of trying to think about like what is he doing differently in his last three films that I have enjoyed so much than he was in his first uh you know four or five films that I didn't really like that much um first of all he's working with Alexander Desplat who's a, a composer who I think brings a lot to the table like I wouldn't say that that's the main thing but um he's a ridiculously talented composer and and his works go along really well with uh with it Wes Anderson's um but I think bigger than that is that I I think he's just gotten better at at plotting um I this is gonna probably sound like I'm dissing some films you really like so I apologize um, but I feel like those last three films, uh, Mr. Fox, Moonrise Kingdom, and Grand Budapest, are just so much better plotted and like tighter uh, films like from a narrative perspective than the earlier films, which were maybe the stakes weren't very high or things were kind of sprawling, lots of tangents, you know, characters not really sure what they're supposed to be up to at any given point in time. Um, and, and I think Budapest Hotel is probably the best example. This is a really, really tightly plotted film um, that kind of like explodes from the first flashback and kind of doesn't doesn't slow down for a long time um so i i don't know if that's all of it 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 might be just that i as i get older my taste change it might be that as he's getting older he's he's trying new things that that resonate with me a bit more but um that's my impression of this movie is that it's really fantastic well and it's also interesting that um these past three films he's like he's always kind of done these themes of uh like growing up and then also like dysfunctional or unusual families Mm -hmm. but these past three films like the coming of age uh growing up has actually been by actual kids yeah whereas in his older film catalog all of this growing up has been done by man children (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah and i i don't know what to make of this but i do think it is also interesting that he's worked less with his kind of core group of people uh jason schwartzman owen wilson bill murray you know those guys um in in the he worked with them a lot more in the first couple films than he has recently um like each of the each of the leads in each of these movies is usually a, a newcomer to the wes anderson filmography um, with George Clooney and then Bruce Willis slash the kids slash uh, Francis McDormand and then in Grand Budapest uh, with uh, is it Rafe Rafe Fiennes like it's it's not Ralph right it looks like Ralph but it's not I know I I, I think it is Ra- I don't know I think it's Rafe I think it's Rafe but, um, but anyway. Um, uh, you know, I I don't necessarily think it's a coincidence either that he's um, moving away from the man children, uh, the people who portrayed the man children in, in a lot of his earlier films. 
but still keeping them in these uh in these little bit roles and where they are much more effective like bill murray was amazing in this movie um as was uh, jason schwartzman i love the way he like kind of hid his uh half smoked cigarette in his like coat pocket i was like that's a really bad idea dude <laughs> <laughs> i also think it's interesting um i can't believe that it took a film that um I can't believe it took a film that was set in an aging European hotel uh, for me to make the comparison in my mind between Wes Anderson and John Irving. Um, but I think it's really interesting. They, they have a lot of similarities. Um, they're both very strong stylists. Like They have a particular style that they work in a lot. Um, they both have kind of ideas and also specific images that they keep returning to like over and over and over again. Um, and they both have this sense that kind of they are... Um, like writing like the same story with different characters and settings sometimes you know like like they right. they're, they're trying to get at core ideas that bother them or that and and they're really like they're like it's like they're kind of taking different approaches to the same problem and i feel like a lot of uh of Anderson films have have felt like that um kind of like oh, definitely um he, he's got these themes that he definitely returns to and that he's obsessed with, and he's like, he's trying to crack that nut. He can't quite get there, but he's like, you know, he's going to keep trying. He's going to keep making um, different different films, different ways of approaching the same problem. Um, and so maybe, yeah, maybe you're right. As he keeps doing it, he gets a little more refined. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will agree that uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, despite its layers, is definitely plot-wise the tightest. Mm-hmm. Although I will say, I think my favorite is still Royal Tenenbaums, which um, has probably the loosest uh, and least cohesive plot mm-hmm. uh, Royal, in its catalog. Right, Royal Tenenbaums is a film that I revisited more recently, and I liked more than I did on first viewing. Um, but I, I think that shaggy dog nature of it still bothers me a little bit. Um you know, still has moments that are that are weaker and stronger than others. Fair. I think I've I've always just liked more slice of life things than mm-hmm. maybe some other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about those layers because there's a lot of stuff going on in Grand Budapest. So you know, it starts all the way in kind of present day, where a, a girl is. Um, visiting the grave of an author and then it right. flashes back to 1985 and the author is kind of recording like a reading or like a memorial tape or something into a video camera oh um, yeah i kind of forgot about that yeah and then it flashes back to 1968 where jude law is um he, he's playing like a like a young writer who has taken kind of a sabbatical at this um at this hotel in uh, the fictional country of like Zabrowski or something. Um, Zubroka. Zubrowka. Yeah. Um, and so he meets uh, the proprietor of the hotel who's played by uh, F. Murray Abraham who is apparently just going to like wander into random movies and do a scene or two <laughs> and then wander back out again. <laughs> That's how he's going to spend the rest of his career because he, he kind of did the same thing in... Uh, Inside Lewin Davis. In fact, I think he was even like mostly seated the whole time in both films, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, but uh, and then it flashes all the way back to 1932, and then at the end of the movie, that kind of like nesting doll uh, 
thing is repeated where it's coming all the way back out to the to the beginning of the film um right or to the begin to catching up with with present day again um i think it's a really interesting choice and i think that it kind of it underlines one of the i think is the recurring film which is like it's a very like i was trying to figure out it's not quite nostalgic it's not quite regretful i think it's like wistful like the mood of the film like everyone is looking backwards in time like to a better era like everyone is like you know sad about what's happened in the world you know even um back in 1932 um the uh monsieur gustave is kind of you get the sense from him that that he knows that his kind of glory days are already over you see there are still faint glimmers of civilization left in this barbaric slaughterhouse that was once known as humanity indeed that's what we provide in our own modest humble insignificant oh fuck it the older uh, Zero Mustafa even says that, I think, mm-hmm. at the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, like he was a man out of time almost, or his time had passed before he came into it. Yes, yeah. and like the hotel was his way of trying to hold on to it. Mm-hmm. And then Zero was holding on to the hotel mm-hmm. as a way to hold on to his time with, uh, uh, what's her name, his wife? Agatha. Agatha. Mm-hmm. Um. And I think it's also really interesting. I, I, I'm not entirely sure what he's trying to say with this, but I thought it was really interesting that he chose to shoot the different uh, time periods in different aspect ratios. Um, and they all kind of track with the, like, what was in vogue at the time. So, like, all the stuff back in the 30s is shot in this kind of, like, 3 to 2 or, like, 1.5 to 1 aspect ratio. Um of it's very square and boxy um and then the present day stuff is all widescreen like the 1985 stuff is like widescreen but smaller I, I'm, I'm not enough of a like film nerd to know what the different aspect ratios are that he's shooting in you spent four years studying film i know but i didn't i wasn't a cinematographer and then we never shot on film anyway it's certainly not old aspect ratios um <laughs> But it's interesting, and I think I do think that the different aspect ratios let him play with different things, like a normal widescreen aspect ratio, you know, that's like a sixteen to nine or a, you know, two thirty-five to one. It it, it emphasizes horizontal space, so like mm-hmm. you see people often putting people, you know, on the right side of the frame, on the left side of the frame, kind of. Uh, it's great for things like soaring vistas and stuff like that, where you really want lots of horizontal space like that. Um, the square frame is better at emphasizing vertical space, which is, I think, and I'm not sure the thematic reason why he's doing it, except that it matches with the film that they were shooting at that time. Um, but that kind of square boxy aspect ratio, he plays around with that a lot in terms of like vertical movement. Um, the lobby of the hotel, the, what do you call that thing? The, the train cut in half. Oh, um... There's a name for it. Uh, I don't know, the, the the little train that takes him up to the hotel. Yeah. Um, the uh, all of the alpine stuff with the, you know, the uh, gondolas and and observatories and things. Um, it's it's interesting. It makes it look different than his other films in a way that I thought was really was really uh, interesting. There's all kinds of, of course, it's a Wes Anderson movie, so there's all kinds of interesting like production design stuff going on here. There are a lot of it that's made with um, like the same kind of detailed models that he used in Fantastic Mr. Fox. And there's some stop motion work and stuff like that too. 
um, kind of mixed in with the live action footage gives it this very interesting kind of like um, fantastical quality. Like it's, it, it makes it definitively a fantasy, which I think is interesting. Funicular, that's what it's called. Mm. The, the train thing that goes up the uh, side of the mountain. The side, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I, I feel like we're kind of jumping around a little. I'm not sure how to organize this discussion. Um, but uh, it's it's definitely it's a film that I think will re- reward multiple viewings because um, there's a lot going on in the frame and a lot to look at. Um, and of course, then there's also just the normal kind of Wes Anderson kind of colors and tracking shots and pans and things like that. I mean, yeah, it's certainly a Wes Anderson film. Yeah. There. <laughs> When you see it, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. Although I will say that, like, kind of a feature of his are these really deadpan protagonists. You know, they have this kind of um, kind of understated way of speaking, and, and it's kind of like highly emotional language, understated delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's very fascinating that he has a much, much more dynamic main character here than he normally does. Um like I'm not I don't think that there's ever been a character like Monsieur Gustave in any Wes Anderson film. Um or a performance like Ray Fiennes is you know, he's like kind of uh suave and um sophisticated and elegant, but then he also kind of has these hilarious outbursts of profanity and um anger and, and things like that. I, I don't know. It, it's a really right. different performance than I've ever seen in a Wes Anderson film before. But uh, the young Zero sort of plays that same understated. Yeah, he really role does. As as the contrast. Yeah. Which you know, which again works. I I was surprised to learn that that is Tony. What's the guy's name? Tony Revolori. Rev- Revolori. It's his first film role, which I think is kind of crazy. Yeah. Um. But he, you know, he he works in it. It. it uh, oh, I thought he did a great job. Me too. Is there a scarier looking person on the planet than Willem Dafoe? <laughs> <laughs> he gets a lot of mileage out of his face in this movie. Like in that scene where he goes to see the 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 sister and he's standing in the snow and like snows behind him and coming down and I don't know, he's just he looks like a like a lizard man or something. Like he's really terrifying looking. The cast that was put together for this movie is pretty out of this world. Like this is a really really hard-hitting cast there are a lot of big names on here yeah um even people who only show up for a scene or two like how harvey Keitel is randomly in it uh tilda swinton under a ton of makeup yeah um, I, had a, I had a hard time believing that was uh tilda swinton at first the one that i didn't recognize was tom wilkinson who plays the author um he did not look at all like he normally looks um, mm, mm. but um and again, you know, um, we mentioned a couple of the performances. Jeff Goldblum shows up for a while um, as a lawyer who is charged with executing uh, a particular will, and he has a very fine Persian cat who he carries around with him everywhere. Oh, that cat. Oh, God, that cat. <laughs> <laughs> I did like I thought that was some nice kind of like parallel. There's a couple of different parallel structures that happen in the film where like the same thing will happen and then happen again later in the movie with slightly different uh, consequences. So, like, you know, the 
the cat gets thrown out the window and it's kind of played for laughs for a moment but then you know he runs over and looks out and the cat's like splattered dead on the ground yeah um and like in a movie like this that kind of like reality check is useful because it you have to know like the movie hasn't told you yet like what happens in this world when like violent things happen like is he just gonna like is the guy just gonna bounce off the ground and then like run away or is he gonna like die and it's like no like if you fall from a high place in this movie like there's enough reality sticking around that you definitely do die in in a bloody kind of spatter um and then later in the movie it like when zero and agatha fall out the window you know that the stakes are real because like you know if they land on the ground, they're going to die in a blade spatter. But then they die, They end up landing on a truck. Yeah. Um, and again, of course, with the trains is the other super obvious one. Where one time they get stopped on the uh, at the border crossing by the militia. And there's like just enough of Monsieur Gustave's kind of old world influence and... Um, and... Uh, c- uh, civility in the form of the SS captain played by uh, Edward Norton to kind of get them out of it and save them. And then when they're stopped in an identical situation later, like that's kind of run out. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting. Everyone speaks with their natural accent and not with the accent of the people they're ostensibly supposed to be. Right. That was most jarring me uh, for me with uh, Agatha. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Agatha, you know, her accent, at least it was, like, fun to listen to. It was most jarring for me with Edward Norton. Because he sounds so so much like himself. He's just, like, (laughs) you know, he's, like, so American. (laughs) But, I mean, all the, like, the thing is, like, uh, you know, I know Edward Norton. So when I see him, like, I that's how I expect him to sound. Mm -hmm. So, uh, like, it almost would have been weirder for me to hear him speak with a, like some sort of Eastern European accent. Mm-hmm. It's just funny because his men are all have like some kind of Eastern European accent. So like the guy, right. like the SS guy who's in the train car before him is like, papers, please. And then Edward Norton comes in. He's like, what's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> Unhand these men. And it's like, he's exactly like Edward Norton normally sounds. <laughs> um but again, kind of adds to the like unreality of the yeah. Well, because because it's supposed to be and, a memory after all. Yeah, and all of Wes Anderson films are in this sort of own like storybook style, mm-hmm. uh, almost cartoony, like vibrant reality, like mm-hmm. pseudo reality. I read that he um, like storyboarded the whole film out before he made it, before he actually shot it with like you know storyboards and animatics and stuff. Um, and then he portrayed all of the voices for all of the characters, which I really hope makes it onto some oh god edition DVD somewhere. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, that would be pretty funny. I also saw that this was shot like it's a house somewhere. Like obviously, all the exterior stuff is models and and um, matte paintings and things. Um, but a lot of the film was shot at, at different houses and things in Germany. And Jeff Goldblum was saying in an interview that they would all just hang out like after they were done for the day, um, which sounds like really cool dinner parties that I would love to go to. Oh, that'd be crazy. Yeah. Yeah. What have, what haven't we talked about? It, it's a funny film. Like, uh, you know, I, I, it's, I came away with it. it it's kind of interesting cause it's like this goofy, wacky, like 
top level plot within like this kind of undercurrent of sadness underneath. So like it's weird because I like laughed through the whole movie really hard and then came out and was sad. Have you ever been questioned by the authorities? Yes, on one occasion. What, what? I was arrested and tortured by the rebel militia after the mm-hmm. desert uprising. Right. Well, you know the drill then. Zip it. Of course. You never heard the word Van Hoytel in your life. Got it. Okay, let's go. Yeah, exactly. Like you were saying, it's sort of wistful. I mean, yeah, there's all sorts of like hijinks mm-hmm. um, overlaid on this uh, like theme of impending war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And quite a number of action sequences. Like, there's a really fantastic, um, uh, it, like a, a, a someone on uh, someone on skis being pursued by some people in a sled that oh. appears to be going through an abandoned Winter Olympics facility. Yeah, what, like why is what, what's with all of these <laughs> like, like a slalom and, and uh, you know a, a shoot for the uh, bobsleds and uh, ski jump and stuff. Um, there's a big kind of all-out gunfight with, you know, dozens of people all shooting each other. Um, there's a, 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 a taut escape from a hot top-secret prison. Um, right. I mean, they do, like, the whole, like, dress as monks and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like, run around and whatever. It's, it's funny because I was in uh, Switzerland over last summer, um, and we visited the Swiss Alps, and... Uh, I stayed for a couple of days in in Grindelwald and in Bern, um, and it, it like it just it just adds another level of of hilarity to the like fake Germanic Alpine world that he's created here. Like, there's a lot of like really hilarious names, like the you know the Holy Order of the Sudetenwalds or whatever, or um, like I don't know. It's just it's just really it's interesting. It's like he took a vacation to uh, the Swiss or, or German or French Alps and like then like wrote a similar but you know world but where nothing actually exists like he has a lot of fun with those kind of long uh convoluted germanic names and phrases and things like that like it, the, i think the first time most people laughed in the film that i was watching oh that's not true most people laugh at the first time when the boy comes in and shoots the guy with the uh like the pea shooter or the cap gun or whatever he's got um oh. when he's filming the video but the next one was when uh Jude Law is talking, and he he throws some random German word in there. He's like, "I was feeling what uh, is commonly referred to as," and then it's like Schlewattenplatz or something like really long. And uh, I don't know. He just has a lot of fun with the language in that way. I do think it's interesting that he's kind of like, like I think there are a lot of people out there who, especially after Royal Tenenbaums, which was like correctly, I think, considered to be kind of a critical failure. Uh, I'm sorry, not not Tenenbaums, Darjeeling Limited. Oh, um, yeah. You know, which was not not really so lauded as his uh, past films had been, and I, I think rightly because it's not that good. It's um, definitely his weakest, with the exception of maybe like Bottle Rocket. Yeah, I think there were a lot of people who wanted him to kind of ease off on his style and, and kind of uh, you know take the things that make him distinctive and kind of find more natural ways to integrate them. And I just think it was it was quite brave of him, but also I think the correct decision to kind of double down on it and say, like, mm. no, like, I this is who I am, this is the kind of art that I make, and it's going to look and sound and be like this. And um, obviously I think he's 
like maybe that failure taught him some things because I think he's been much more successful since then. Do you think it's better than um, uh, Moonrise Kingdom, the last movie we talked about of his? Hmm. I think Moonrise Kingdom is probably a little bit better. Um, I love the... There's just a lot of things about Moonrise Kingdom that I think work really well. Um, I think that the the Bruce Willis and... and uh, and Sam Shikusky, the kid's relationship, is just really touching and beautiful. Um, I like, I, I don't know, like the the young love kind of stuff that's going on in that film. It just, it, it, um, it works for me. I don't know, I think it's a little bit better, but it's a really, really tough call. Um, I would agree with you, um, but I, um, I have not watched Moonrise Kingdom since uh, I saw it in theaters. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd like to watch it again. I think that, Grand Budapest Hotel is a better made film. Like, it's more visually ambitious. Um, there's more... He, he gets to play around with different time periods, which gives him, like, even more of this kind of uh, world to play in in terms of production value and stuff like that. Um, uh, so I think that it, as just as an excuse for indulging his aesthetic, Grand Budapest Hotel is works better. Um and it is more kind of madcap like this. It, it's, it doesn't slow down. It doesn't take moments to think about things like, like Moonrise Kingdom does. Mm. Um, but I think I do slightly give Moonrise Kingdom the edge. Okay, should we move on? Yeah. Oh, I mean, uh, we don't really need to include it. I thought it was just interesting at the end of the movie. Like, well, at the end of the story, mm-hmm. the author basically says he's like, okay, and then left for South America. Mm-hmm. Like okay, and the movie ends. <laughs> like so, it's like you see this because it's like a chapter in this author's life mm-hmm. that's really segmented. I don't know. I don't know. To some extent, zero. He's such a tragic figure, you know. Because like he he he's it's interesting because he he found the love of his life, but somehow, like the love of his life was not the most important person in his life. Like, it's fascinating to me that his relationship with Agatha is not the primary driving relationship of the movie. It's his, like, kind of protege relationship with uh, Monsieur Gustave. Mm-hmm. So, I, I don't know. There's, there's just like an, a... There is a sense throughout that we're kind of just getting peeks into, like, portions of these people's lives. Like right. we don't, they he glosses over many of the most important plot points just kind of in a sentence. Like he's like just like oh yeah, Agatha died of like the flu or something, right? Um, and we don't get it even to see the death of of Monsieur Gustave because like by that like the him getting shot was not what was important. No. Um, so there is kind of a sense that we're like dropping into just the important bits of these people's lives. And so like it's kind of the same with the author. Like we're only really interested in the author like for the time that he's speaking to Zero. But it is interesting that he just kind of leaves. And I also wonder like you know the by setting up this parallel structure the movie kind of invites you to wonder like is the what was presented on screen from 1932 is that exactly as it happened? Is it exactly as Zero related it to the author? 
or is it like filtered through not only you know what actually happened and then filtered through the zero and then also filtered through the author in his book um right so many layers of narrators yeah and and i do think that the kind of heightened reality aspects of it like the odd physics of the chase through the the winter olympics uh, park and the ridiculous mechanics of the escape from the prison and stuff like that like i do think it suggests that it is filtered through multiple layers that we're looking from it all the way from the perspective of that girl who hangs the key on the author statue uh, in the very end right anyway should we move on uh yeah they're sworn to protect i'm your new commanding officer speech that was my speech they're ready to serve hey welcome to the murder they're dressed ah! to impress your shirt looks like vomit good call this fall the next time i see you i'd like you to be wearing a necktie one office comedy doesn't go by the book so uh our second topic today is brooklyn 99 the kind of i would say it's a breakout hit breakout fox sitcom um uh, i think it's been pretty successful yeah i think it's been one of the strongest uh premieres of this past year's tv season mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so it's a sitcom set in um the fictional 99th precinct um of the nypd um and it follows kind of the <clears throat> i don't know the crazy wacky cast of detectives that work there um main character i think is ostensibly supposed to be andy sandberg uh, who plays detective jake peralta and he's surrounded by uh a, you know a kind of again like kind of a quirky bunch of other detectives like uh um terry cruz as uh the sergeant in his precinct um joe latrulio plays another detective boyle um and then a couple other uh, detective diaz and and uh then obviously Andre Brower is the captain of the precinct. Mm. Um, and uh, I was actually kind of surprised by how much I love this show. I heard kind of good things right when it first started coming out, like a little bit of buzz that it was um, that it was funny and, and started watching it a couple of months ago. Um, we were considering talking about it in an episode at the end of last year, so I kind of made you watch it all, and then we did not end up being able to record that. So I, I guess right. that's probably when you started watching too. Yeah, and I was really surprised at how much I enjoyed watching it. I think, like, we were aiming to record sometime in December when it was on, like, mid-season break, and I think there was, like, a dozen or so episodes. Mm-hmm. And um, I finished that, that those episodes surprisingly fast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Although, on the other hand, it maybe, like, shouldn't have been a surprise considering that the uh, creators of the show both came from Parks and Rec, and one of them actually came originally from The Office, and those are two shows right. that you also really love and are also kind of workplace comedies with quirky uh, quirky main characters and stuff like that. True. Um, so, But I, I think that this is has been uh, better faster than certainly Parks and Rec, which had a really rough first season, um, and also maybe than The Office. You know, I don't remember that much about first season The Office, but I just don't oh, remember no, it yeah. having... The Quite first season the confidence. Is, is also pretty pretty weak. Mm-hmm. I, and I mean, you remember the pilot is like a, a like poor a man's... copy. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and I think it shares a lot with those films, not only kind of, or not those uh, TV series, not only kind of the, um, the, 
the uh, workplace aspect of it, but also kind of the, it, it's like, I almost think of it as like kind comedy or like victimless comedy. Like, like they're, they're extremely funny without being uh, very, very cruel. If that makes any sense. Parks and Rec right. is yeah. almost a bit more like that than Brooklyn Nine-Nine, but. Well, because like they're all competent in various ways and to various degrees at their jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, like, you know, a lot of shows would use some sort of, like, incompetence mm-hmm. as a sort of crutch to relay the humor. Mm-hmm. Brooklyn Nine-Nine was very successful in setting up uh, their characters and the the relationships between the main cast mm-hmm. uh, much faster than Parks and Rec or The Office, yeah. which was very helpful in stabilizing uh, the early parts of the season. The, the the word I keep coming back to when I think about Brooklyn Nine-Nine is confidence. Like, it's an extremely confident television show. Like, it has... It, it allows the characters to be weird, you know, in, it, to embody their archetypes, but also kind of break out of them by having weird, like, you know, secondary aspects or, or you know, things about their personality that are that are off or, or strange. Like I said, Sal's is an institution and it's the best pizza in the neighborhood. I'm sorry, Jake. Sal's is only the eighth best. I put out a weekly Brooklyn pizza ranking email blast. Sal's has the fourth best texture, ninth best crust, twelfth best cheese, and honestly, they're only seventh in mouthfeel. Mouthfeel? What is that? The inside of your cheeks are very sensitive. It's like the inside of your thighs except with a tongue. Oh. God, it it doesn't do very much backtracking. Like everyone, you go back and watch the first episode, and sometimes the pilot seems weird. Like everyone's acting differently than they normally do, or like different characters are emphasized and stuff. Because pilots are often, you know, don't end up having that much, uh, you know, uh, to do with the shows that they eventually become. But that's not like this in this show. Like they, I get the feeling that they knew exactly where they wanted to go from the very beginning of the series. And they just uh, had the kind of the experience by this point in their careers, I guess, sure and sure and gore, or maybe like the freedom from the network or whatever they needed to like deliver exactly what I think they they started out to to do. The best character for me by far is uh, Terry Jeffords, the giant like oh, yeah. bodybuilding uh, sergeant of the. Uh, of the crew who's played by Terry Crews who is like establishing himself continuing to establish himself as like an exceedingly talented like comedy actor um, but he you know he's this he, he's this big kind of tough talking sergeant whose like job is to like keep everyone in shape and like online but then he also like has all kinds of like funny things about him like he really likes yogurt and he's <laughs> actually terrified of combat for a bunch of the season because uh He's got some some daughters that he has to take care of now, and he's a very good artist, um, and, and quite a sensitive soul underneath. And I, I don't know, it's just <laughs> like they're 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 totally willing to let the characters get a little bit weird like that, um, which I think is a very very good idea. The other huge star of the of the show to me is Andre Brower as the captain, um, who's totally deadpan about everything, <laughs> and has like the best. <laughs> Like uh, reactions to things that I, that I can possibly imagine. Well, because he he like plays the straight man to the craziness of the rest of the cast, um, but with and with this deadpan, uh, just complete attitude. 
like world weariness almost. But it, at the same time, it's also sarcastic almost. Mm-hmm. Like you get the, you get it makes you feel like he's mocking them a little bit. Exactly because he knows, like it feels like he knows how ridiculous everything is, mm-hmm. and by being completely indifferent to it, mm-hmm. he like yeah, it's like he's making fun of them for it. Yeah. Do you want to know how I actually hurt my wrist? Yes. I was hula hooping. Kevin and I attend a class for fitness and for fun. Oh, my God. I've mastered all the moves. The pizza toss, the tornado, the scorpion, the oopsie doodle. Why are you telling me this? Because no one will ever believe you. No, no. You sick son of a bitch. Um, I also think it's just really fascinating, and I don't really know quite what to make of this, but like between this show... Almost Human, New Girl, and like a couple other Fox shows. I feel like Fox has like eighty percent of the of the black men on TV right now are on Fox shows. Like it, it's just they've done a really great job, like um, writing roles on all of their shows for black men that aren't just like you know normal kind of urban gangster roles. Like I I, I don't know I I feel like it's a it's a little bit important, even though it's just a dumb sitcom, that, like, the two commanding officers of the precinct, like, are both black men. And one of them is a gay black man. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I like that. It's, it's like, it's important without kind of being, like, token like at the forefront. Or, yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Let's see. Uh, there uh, other kind of... Break, uh, really, all of the main cast and a lot of the supporting cast are all really, really funny. Um uh, but other kind of really stand-up people for me include uh, Chelsea Peretti, um, who plays this super bizarre like office assistant or like administrator in the precinct, um, who's like harmless but also totally insane. Uh, so she's like extremely narcissistic, and she like makes really weird comments all the time. She has a tendency to get really obsessed with like um, like internet culture like aspects of internet culture like the game that she plays with the like bubbles or whatever it was crazy cupcakes crazy cupcakes <laughs> that's right <laughs> <laughs> or like in the last episode she just starts speaking in emoticons <laughs> she's like oh my that god makes yeah makes me feel cat frowny face like <laughs> um <laughs> yes yeah, she's definitely like i always wonder like how she holds on to this job because <laughs> i think she's actually pretty competent like like you said at the beginning, like I feel like she actually like probably is really super good at her job, like in her own weird way. Like I think about the episode where they're like interviewing people for a job. For IT. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. you're right. And like her like odd interview style like ends up getting them like the best candidate. That's why Holt insisted that she be there for the interviews. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> she she is definitely the most surreal of the Yeah. The cast. Yeah. Um, and then I also really love Joe LaTrulio as uh, Detective Boyle, who is kind of this nebbish, um, like, uh, he's like the he's like the beta male of the office. He's, he's like, he worships Jake Peralta, the main character, uh, played by Andy Samberg. And he, but he also is like a good detective in his own right. Um, and he's also a huge foodie. 
So he like runs a blog that talks about like the mouth feel of various pizza places, <laughs> and he falls way too in love with this woman who like yeah, she's like a food critic or something. I think she was like, oh, like a chef. She's like an, I thought no, she because she worked at the she worked at Columbia oh, with um, like some kind of professor, I guess. Yeah, I think was she like anthropology or something? I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, but I think it's interesting that the character who I. I'm fine with, but do not really care about very much at all is uh, Peralta, the ostensible main character of the series, who's kind of the least interesting of them all. Oh, really? I mean, he's supposed to be this kind of like, you know, screw you, authority, I do what I want kind of dude. But like, I don't know. I just find, you know, at the beginning, he was like verging on being a little bit over the top and like actually being um, off-putting to me. Um, and then he gets a little bit better over time. Like, I think they kind of rein him in a little bit. Um, and uh, the show also becomes slightly, slightly more of an ensemble than it originally was. Oh, definitely. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, he's fine and Sandberg does a good job and he's not, honestly, I'm not a huge Andy Sandberg fan. So in my opinion, he's like not as annoying as he often is. Um, I mean, I felt like that before I started watching this show. Which is why I probably put it off watching it. But I was just looking back, I I don't know why I would have said that I am not an Andy Samberg fan. Yeah, I like look at what he's done, and like except for SNL, like I haven't really seen or I, I didn't dislike a lot of it. So I don't really, I don't really know where this feeling came from either. But for some reason, I just like had this feeling in my mind, like I do not like Andy Samberg. Which yeah, maybe it's a little unfair. Yeah, looking back over this season list. It's like, it, like again, coming back to that same like confidence thing that I talked about a lot at the beginning. Like, it's just, it's kind of crazy how much they were able to advance every single character's arc. Like, it wasn't like, it, it, you know, I, I don't, I, I really don't think that The Office or Parks and Rec were doing this in their first season. Where like, it's not just Peralta's arc that was advanced, where he went from being like this kind of cocky, you know doesn't give a shit about anything detective to where he ends up at the last episode, which I would argue is a very different place. Um, oh. it also manages to take Terry's arc forward. Terry goes from being like, you know, afraid to even go into the field all the way forward to being a fully capable police officer again. Um, Santiago's arc where she like, you know, with her new relationship with things, the captain's arc, like it, it just, it, the, the amount that the characters have actually changed, since the first and second episode, but in a totally organic, like dictated by circumstances and story way, is really remarkable for a non-serialized show. I heard a, an interview with uh, Terry Crews, uh, a really great interview, actually, I recommend it to everybody. It's on The Sound of Young America, which is a podcast. Um, and he basically said that at the he has, he's got a really interesting background. He went to like art school and like somehow parlayed his art school like background into like a, a scholarship to like University of Michigan or something and then went from there to the NFL and then was in the NFL for a couple of years before becoming an actor. Um, and he uh, he says that before, like when they were still writing the pilot in the first couple episodes, like, but after they'd cast everybody, um, Dan Gore and Michael Schur, I think is how you pronounce their names, like the, the co-creators, mm-hmm. um, like sat down with everybody on the cast and like talked to them about like, 
interesting aspects about their personality. Tell us about your backgrounds. Like, and then they like wrote that stuff into the show. It's like Terry Crews. He's like, I really do like yogurt and like, (laughs) I'm a really good artist. And so like on the show, there's like one episode where like they ask him to like substitute in as a sketch artist. Hey, Sergeant, you know how you're really good at um, doodling? I know you think you're complimenting me, but calling them doodles is an insult. You a big fan of Picasso's doodles? Sorry. Can you please draw a perp for me? The sketch artist is out sick and the captain wants this done right away. He's in a bad mood. Is he? I can never read him. I'm telling you. He and I have a connection and there is something bothering him. Can you help me out? Great. Now, can you please describe the perp to Sergeant Jeffords? Yeah, he had um, dark curly hair and a neck tattoo. Wait, wait, wait. Slow down. Uh, Let's start with the eyes. Were they desperate? Lonely? Did they betray heartache? They were brown. Do you even want your purse back? (laughs) And so, like, he says that, like, he, you know, he actually drew, like, the drawing that he ends up with at the end of that episode. Oh, that's really impressive. And he says he got a call from his mom, like, after the show was on, and she was like, they finally know that you're, like, an artist. And they're like, Mom, no one's going to know that because, like, (laughs) they think it's just going to be, like, written into the show. And she's like, no, everybody finally knows, like, how great of an artist you are. And he's like, okay, Mom. Like, (laughs) Leave me alone. <laughs> but I really like the idea of them like sitting down with all these people and like maybe Joe Latrulio like really is like a huge foodie or like maybe Santiago, like, you know, whoever plays uh, Santiago, I forget her name, um, uh, like really does, I don't know, say super awkward things sometimes. I don't know. <laughs> like, I, I like that uh, approach to building the characters. Oh yeah, that's that's really interesting, and I think it makes it maybe that's why the characters felt more in place right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Quite like lived in. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, other series they take a couple episodes for actors to find the right balance of all of these character traits. Mm-hmm. I think my two favorite episodes from this season are probably The Vulture, just because I really love Dean Winters. The Vulture is a good one. Oh as this, like, asshole cop who, like, comes in to take over because, the you know, he doesn't think they're making, like, enough uh, progress uh, on their on their case. Um, and I also really, really love the party episode where they go to the captain's birthday party. And, like, uh, Terry's got to, like, keep all of them... Like, kind of in line like he's like okay like party rules like no shorts bring a bottle of wine oh, don't talk about this stuff <laughs> i really love that episode because oh. it shows like how poorly these people like work in a kind of a, a in a uh, setting outside of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Outside what of they're the good at yeah, yeah. Actually, maybe my only problem with the show is that, like, I, there is a little bit of cognitive dissonance for me around watching, like, a comedy show set at a police precinct. Because, like, in reality, like, in real life, like, the NYPD is not exactly, like, the most sterling department on the face of the planet. Like, this is a group of people who, like, manipulates their stats by, like, bumping people's oh. crimes up. You know, in terms of like, you know, 
you know, making a sure, sure traffic stop and yeah, like you know, these are they sometimes just shoot people who like totally don't deserve it. They stop and frisk random people who haven't done anything wrong. Like the NYPD is not like the most sterling reputation of like any organization on the planet. Um, so it's like a tiny bit of cognitive dissonance for me, and they haven't really tackled any of those issues so far. Like all of the d- detectives in the in the show like tend to play everything pretty much by the book um we haven't seen an instance where people get in trouble for like violating warrant law or like beating somebody up who they shouldn't beat up or anything like that well like there was the 48 hour episode oh yeah or jake oh, yeah. like arrested that guy like without, without any proof yeah but i th- i think like for the most part mm-hmm. um like the fact that they're police officers and is set in a police precinct takes a back seat to the interpersonal relationships yeah and a lot of this show would work in a setting like the office or parks and rec Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because i mean like you like i would certainly not describe this as you know a comedic police procedural to Mm -hmm. someone else Mm -hmm. not something like uh you know like psych or uh one of those shows yeah um yeah. the the police aspect is very background mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously like there's um there's uh there's lots of shows set at the nypd and i'm not saying that every single one of them needs to like you know be a searing indictment of the organization or tackle current issues or anything like that. Like, I think it's totally fine for Brooklyn Nine-Nine to be doing what it's doing. Um, it's just every once in a while, like, the uh, the uh, fictional world that they work in, like, overlaps with an area in the real world where there are really legitimate problems here. Like, there's an episode where, like, uh, Holt and, and Terry, they're, like, worried about their crime stats, like, their comp stat uh, statistics and so they like look through the department to like reduce inefficiencies um which is a funny sh- episode because it involves them basically like spying on the rest of the people in the precinct to see like what they're doing wrong and like it's a really funny setup but in real life like the real versions of holton jeffords like their solution was to just arrest more people for more things um which was you know a legitimate problem that you know resulted in some people getting treated not very well um so I'd just right. be interested to see how they continue to balance this in the future and whether, you know, like if a if a detective did have the temptation to do something wrong or unethical, like will they kind of face the consequences? And so far, like for all of Jake's like, you know, n- like supposed rebelliousness or something like that, like he like respects warrant law and he doesn't like punch random people in the face. Like he's actually not that much of a loose cannon. Right, and again, that's part of this thing where they are actually very competent at mm-hmm. their job. Mm-hmm. Like he's kind of a clown, but he is like the department's most effective. Yeah, I, I don't like that. It rhymes. <laughs> effective detective. <laughs> I was, I was, is coming out of my mouth, and I was like, "What is any other word I could have used?" <laughs> have you heard about this videotape that kills you when you watch it? You start to play it, and it's like somebody's nightmare. And as soon as it's over, 
your phone rings. And what they say is, you will die in seven days. All right, so our foreign, uh, our, our foreign film and its American remake this week, um, let's see, was The Ring and the Japanese film also called Ring or Ringu. Mm. Um, we we watched a lot of uh, remakes so far. This is what our fifth, fourth or fifth. Uh, this is our fifth. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what I think is really fascinating about this pair of films to me is that this is the first one I think that I can unequivocally say, with no reservations, that the uh, remake is better than the original. Agreed. I much preferred the American version to the Japanese version of this film, even though the stories were very similar and a lot of the... Well, yes, like like when we talked about last time with uh, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, Tortilla Soup, mm-hmm. both of these films are also like as close um, uh, uh, an, a direct adaptation as you probably could have done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Except this time, the American remake is infinitely more successful yes i think so too so i mean the basic story for anyone who did not watch this as a high schooler um and be scared out of your minds because this is a really big film when i was in high school um and, and probably one of the more successful horror films of the 2000s i would think i i would think that it it the success of the ring in america was the reason for uh this uh, that certain wave of uh, Japanese horror in America, you know, mm-hmm. like The Grudge and I don't know what else. Ring 2 and all kinds of things, yeah. Blah, 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 whatever. Um, so the story uh, is basically of a... It's got the dumbest plot on the history of the planet, basically. Um, <laughs> there's a cursed videotape. When you watch that videotape uh, seven days later, a creepy little girl with uh, hair all over her face climbs out of your TV and basically frightens you to death. Um, and so in the opening kind of segment of the film, these two girls, these two teenage girls, um, watch the videotape. And, or, or I'm sorry. These, no, 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 no. these two video girls have watched the videotape a week prior, and one of them dies uh, violently. Well, yeah. Yeah. And then basically in investigating their deaths, um, an investigative reporter... Um, played in the English version by Naomi Watts, um, kind of has to go through and figure out what's happening here before she and, herself dies. You know, yeah. yeah, she falls into the curse as well as the rest of her family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. Um, so it, I'm not sure quite what the best way to talk about this is, but I think I'll tell you the reasons why. I think that the American version is slightly more successful, and we can talk about why you think it's more successful. Um, for one thing, it does a really nice job paring down the plot lines. Um, the Japanese version suffers, I think, a little bit from like paranormal uh, uh, abilities oh. creep. Like there's yeah, a, well, and it also seemed superfluous. Yeah, in in both in both uh, in both films, there is a husband character or an ex husband character who kind of helps um, the investigative reporter figure stuff out. And in the Japanese version, he himself is also psychic, right? Like yeah, and it doesn't anything starts happening, but it doesn't really do much. No, like he sees some. 
like flashbacks. Mm-hmm. Or but, he sees but, other ghosts too. Like he, the girl who dies in the beginning scene comes back as a ghost a couple of times, uh, which also does not happen in the American version at all. Uh, yeah. Um, and there's just a lot more focus. Like they lost a lot of the superfluous details like that. Um, like the ghost, like his weird supernatural abilities. Um, you know, the, the, in the Japanese version, the mother of this girl who has gone on to be this kind of vengeful ghost was herself a psychic in the American version. She just suffered from hallucinations. Um, right. And her psychic abilities are, uh, debatable, maybe, maybe hinted at, maybe not, but certainly not expressed kind of out there in the world. Um, and it's just, it's just a lot more focused. Like they took what was good about the original film and, and what was bad, honestly, because there's some bad stuff about both films. Neither of them is like a like cinematic masterpiece. Well, no. Um, but it took what was good about the, about the first film, kept it all and kind of pared it down to like really just what's most scary, what most supports the main storyline and, and stuff like that. Um, so even though they are both, um, even though it's it's a pretty close remake, as you mentioned, like I think that they were quite uh, quite uh, intelligent to leave out the things that they left out, and some shots are the same and stuff like that. But it does not feel as much like a ripoff as the uh, tortilla soup did last week. I think one of the strongest things that the American remake did was the all of the characters in this movie feel like like they're fleshed out they're people with personalities and relationships between mm-hmm. one another and you know history whereas i f- like i feel like everything in the the japanese film like these were just they were very flat empty people that are just going through the plot mm-hmm. i remember thinking in the japanese film it's really weird that her niece dies and she does not appear to give a shit um, like in the in the beginning, the the girl who dies in the opening scene is the niece of the investigative reporter, who in the Japanese version is named, uh, I think it's uh, Reiko. Reiko. Um, and like it, her niece ha- is, has died, and she does not appear to care. Like she is like totally smiling, happy, normal person. Goes to the funeral, like doesn't seem to be that upset. No one else at the funeral seems to be that upset. Like it's pretty weird, actually. Um, and, and I think you're you're definitely right, especially also the relationship between her and her ex-husband is, um, it just doesn't feel organic or, or it doesn't feel like there's any history there. Which, yeah, just they don't feel like people. They just yeah. feel like bodies that are standing in the plot to move forward. Yeah. Um, and like part, right from, well, oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Uh, like I was going to say, like right from the beginning of the American remake, like you see... Uh, the broken relationship between uh, Naomi Watts' character and her son, mm-hmm. right? Like, she is this workaholic single mother, and this boy is... Like, her first scene with him, like, it's her running late to picking him up from school, and, you know, she's, like, on the way there, like, cursing into her phone, like, in his classroom... Um, and it immediately establishes like this distance between them. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like in the Japanese film, you have like I feel like you don't know anything about their relationship. No, you really don't. 
Um, I think that's a very good point. And part of it comes from like the star power that this movie brings. Like it's kind of weird that Naomi Watts is like slumming it in this genre film. I guess it's like before she really became, you know, like a known quantity. But she she's very good. She brings like just the kind of right measure of like desperation and intensity to that role, I think. Um Brian Cox shows up in a random kind of role later in the film that's very oh, yeah. creepy and and weird. And I think even um I do not know this guy really, Martin Henderson, who plays the ex-husband, whose name is Noah, uh, in the American film. Um, but he does a pretty good job too. I think that he his Noah is kind of a no, he's like a slubby kind of maybe never quite grew up kind of dude. Yeah. Um, but uh, well, you know, you see him living in his like loft studio, wearing his flip flops. Yeah. Um, but brings like a good. Like a good amount of like he seems like a decent dude like even through all of that so um yeah so Naomi Watts when this movie would came out would have been just coming off of uh, Mulholland Drive which she was nominated oh, yeah. for like every single uh you know uh, award in the world for I still don't think I understand that movie a hundred percent no no one understands that movie a hundred percent and she was it. Soon after this movie came out, she would have been in films like 21 Grams, uh, I Heart Huckabees, uh, King Kong, well, stuff like that. King Kong. I don't know. She, I mean, she's nominated for plenty of things for that, too. Uh, she's, I mean, she's, she, she becomes a, like a, not just a, you know, a, not just a leading lady, but like a, you know, a, a well-regarded actress. Um, but I don't think she's quite there when this film comes out, which is probably why you know she she's in it at all um it, it, it's a very effective film and and i think it's interesting because the director of the english language version is gore verbinski um who is as far as i can tell he's a very talented director with no taste in scripts that is the only that, oh, that is the only uh, explanation I can come up with, because he's responsible for some very, very, very good films. Rango is an amazing film. It is ridiculously funny, uh, well directed. Uh, it's just a really great animated film. Um, but he's also directed like every Pirates of the Caribbean movie, and also Mouse Hunt, and also well, he's, aren't, like, he's some of the pirate movies, movies good. Like, like, wasn't the first one at least good? I do not remember. I, 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 do, I never really got the Pirates movies. Um, but I do know that they have plenty of fans. So maybe they're better than... Oh, he did the Lone Ranger. Ranger. Yeah, he did the Lone Ranger. Which, like... <laughs> like, he's... I think he's, like, a good director who just has very poor... Uh, choice in in projects. Um, the other thing I think is interesting about The Ring, both versions, is that it is a deeply silly movie that does not seem to know that it's silly. Like, this movie takes itself real seriously. Like, you get this, just the sense, like, everything about this movie is like, this is an important movie, this is a serious movie. Because, um, I mean, I think I think horror movies, you can either be like, like, Funny horror, like Cabin in the Woods style, kind of or like Shaun of Dead, you know, yeah. whatever. Or you, you, or you like to build that atmosphere. You have to take it seriously. Mm-hmm. 
Because mm-hmm. otherwise, like, if you, like, wash anywhere in between, like, you ruin the atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. And this was kind of like a time for serious business horror movies. Like, I think probably, like, out of reaction to, like, Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer in the 90s, which were all, like, kind of winking, funny horror. And then, like, you had, like, things like uh, Blair Witch Project and uh, The Ring and, and other films like that in the in the early 2000s that I think were, like, a little bit of a rebellion and, like, to be, like, yeah, you know, these kind of movies can still be scary. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know. It's 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 interesting to me that, it, and I think the premise looks. I mean, we talked about this a little bit last week with the DVR um, and stuff like that. But like, this movie is like really stupid. Like, even if it's a VHS tape, it's like really oh. stupid and very very dated. Like all. Yeah, of the, I can't believe how many like this. Everything, every context in this movie is like antiquated mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you had a phone call on your landline like what i do really like that at one point she gets what is definitely one of the seven days call and she lets it go to her answering machine and then she deletes the message before she actually plays it back and i was just like if you played that message would have been like it'd be like you have one new message beep <laughs> seven days beep like what is what's the ghost leaving a message <laughs> <laughs> what happens if you don't listen to the message for four days? Do you still get seven days after that, or is it three days after that? Like, <laughs> I just thought it was ridiculous. <laughs> and um, um, yeah, and so yeah, like, but that was something to build like a very serious atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it was a more comedic movie, I think they would have used that as a moment to break tension and it would have been like a completely irrelevant voicemail like yeah no, oh your nothing, dry cleaning's done nothing breaks tension in this movie like there's no right. funny like relief moment it's all just no. kind of dread it's and, all just yeah just know. tension and building and tension yeah. and tension um which again I, i'll say i'll say it mostly works like it, it sustains the atmosphere for long enough that you're not really thinking about you know how, how again how deeply silly the movie is until it's over and you're like wait a minute like i there's literally no way that i would ever even be in, threatened by this anymore because i do not own a vhs player anymore <laughs> i have not seen a screen full of static in a very long time <laughs> <laughs> you what about a like a terrifying um Netflix movie that pops to the top of your queue. <laughs> Wait, what is this random Netflix movie at the top of my queue? I guess just okay, I guess we'll watch it. What? I didn't rent this from iTunes. Like, how does she continue being? You know, did 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 Samara make the the analog to digital jump? Like, you know, or she's still just stuck on a DVD somewhere, or a cassette tape somewhere? Do you think like some of her is stuck on HD DVD, lost in a landfill? There's a particular shot early in the film um, where they cut to the dead body of the girl in the closet. Um, oh yeah, I'm not sure that there's ever been a more terrifying corpse in a movie. Oh yeah, I remember when I first saw it in the movie theaters. It was that's a, a great piece of like, like both 
cosmetic design and then like the cinema like the uh cinematography of it just long enough mm-hmm. or you get it into your mind mm-hmm. and, and you i can't I th- yeah go ahead i think it's also like it, it's it it comes in the middle of a totally calm conversation like she and her sister are talking and the sister like says something like I, I saw her or something like that. And then there's like, it, it's like all three things at once. It, it comes in the middle of this totally like boring banal scene. And the, you're right. The production design or the, the makeup design on the corpse is terrifying. And the shot lasts just long enough. And there's also like this like shrieking musical note in the score. That's like a, I don't know. It's like some kind of whistle or something. Um, but like all of those things together just make this like one of the most startling jump scares I've like yeah, ever seen you, in a film. Makes you stand up on edge. Mm-hmm. And, and it works too in the Japanese version, though I, I don't think quite as well. Like some, some there's like a filter on the, um, on the film that makes you that makes you know that it's like a, you know, not uh, not real or it kind of takes you out of it. Yeah. Oh, speaking of which, though, did you notice that this movie is green? Yeah. Like, they, it's like they shot the whole thing. You know, this was, like, really early days of digital color correction for films. Um, like, I think Oh Brother Were Out That was the first one where they, like, went through and made everything, like, digitally made everything, like, really warm, like, amber tones. Um, and I'm not sure that they quite knew how to use it, like, responsibly yet. Because this movie seriously looks green. Like, it looks like someone's holding, like, a green gel in front of the camera the entire time. Um, but I guess it has its desired effect, which is like, it, um, it's quite, quite distancing. It makes, it makes everything seem like, uh, more somber. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and cause like, like it's in, like, it's like, it feels like it's just always rainy and Mm -hmm. kind, it just creates this kind of hopelessness. It's cold. Like it's like a cold barrier between you and the film. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I think. To that degree, it—I mean, it's, maybe it's—you're right. Maybe it's a little clumsy, mm-hmm. but I think it creates the appropriate atmosphere. And I do think it makes um, the vi- like the visual of the the red tree mm-hmm. very striking. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Oh, and the, actually, one other thing: why um, the American remake does a, a much better job of um, tying everything together. Mm-hmm. In a way, like, um, like first of all, like the movie is called The Ring, yeah, right. Um, and so, ostensibly, what we learn that the ring is is like the last sight that um, Samara sees of the lid of the well mm-hmm. going over the top of her with the the halo of light mm-hmm. just cracking through, like, and it's also the first visual you see in uh, like her videotape. Yeah, but like, like that's definitely not in the Japanese movie, which is baffling. Like, just how like, can you leave that out? Like, it's such an important. Like, I just don't understand why you would call this ring. Yeah, and like, yeah. Um, and then it's just like every like I liked that everything in the video, like uh, the horror VHS tape, mm-hmm. like uh, tied into different as like different things in the movie mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. much better than uh, the original did yeah yeah and again talking about scenes that uh, were not in the 
um, not in the original, but I think uh, were added. One of the few scenes I think that was added for the. I guess you know the, the the films track pretty closely in the beginning, but they diverge quite a lot at the end. Oh yeah, um, and there's a couple important changes at the end that I think were really really great. First of all, I love the scene of the horse on the ferry, um, which is like probably one of the m- moments of like pure horror in the movie. Not like a jump scare, but like oh my god, like oh. what's happening? I can't believe this is happening. Yeah, um, well, because it's it's. Um, one of the few scenes of like actual action mm-hmm. and the way that the horse like falls into the water like its hoof like catches on the ledge of the boat and it like kind of does this it's like very majestic and terrifying up to that point and then it just does this incredibly clumsy and uh like disturbing fall into the water and then you see like the red churn of the mm. of the propeller and it's just uh everything about that is is terrifying um the whole everything to do with the old man and all of his like you know his whole suicide stuff that happens at the end um is also very terrifying um and and i think the single most important change that they made is that it is the mother who slips the plastic bag over samara's head and dumps her into the well in the american version in the japanese version it's the father who you haven't really seen that much of who sneaks up behind her and cracks her on the head with some, like so whatever, yeah, piece of thing. rock. Um, yeah, I and uh, I, I think I feel like it's just more thematically resonant, resonant, and uh, if it's the mother who's who who wanted this daughter all her life and who's kind of come to realize that she's uh, not a not a a real child. Yeah. Um, by the way, did you notice like? when in the Japanese version, when the guy sneaks up behind her and hits her on the head and she falls into the well, like the sound effect that they used for that is like the most, Oh yeah, no, video yeah, gamey, like ridiculous, it's, like dragged like, it out of garage band. It's like, thwack. it's, it's like a clip art of, like, of sound clips. I can't remember where I've heard it before, but there is, definitely a video game where you can like click on something and it makes that noise and you can click on it over and over again so you can be like and i i can't remember where it's from but when i heard that it just took me out of the moment like so hard like it is i can't believe i can't believe you're you're exactly right i remember watching it just being like that is so out of place it's really funny but it makes you appreciate like great sound design when you hear something like that and you're just like what were you thinking what were you thinking like putting that sound in here well they're probably like oh crap can we hire a foley artist mm-hmm. no no uh okay and maybe that was before it had been like used in these video games or something but it's just a ridiculous noise but it, it yeah it it stands out mm-hmm so yeah, I don't know. It's it's an interesting film. It's uh, it, it's so grim. Like it just like it it kind of keeps me from like really kind of loving it. Even though like when I was especially when I was in high school, we watched this movie a lot because it was like fun when you were in high school to watch like scary movies with a bunch of people and everyone yep. screams and stuff. But yeah. but I mean yeah, that's why I mean that's why I still like it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's nostalgic. Mm-hmm. I do think that a, a flaw in both versions is that I don't think they needed two creepy kids. Like, uh, I think that you could have actually eliminated 
the child character of the reporter and that not harmed the movie at all. It has almost nothing to do with the plot. Um, And I, I, I just thought that character was so useless. Again, he's like, he's a moron. He's like, he's this creepy, like really creepy little kid, but you already have a creepy little kid. Like, I just did not think that the character of, what's his name, Aiden, um, in the American version was, was necessary at all. Well, I think in the American version it helps give uh, Naomi Watts' character uh, sort of an arc. Again, like you see in the very beginning of the movie, she's like distant and uh, like not cold, but like just unattentive mm-hmm. to her own child. Mm-hmm. And then and then towards this back half of the movie, like everything is like her entire drive is to protect him. Mm-hmm. And then um, I also I just also like that moment um, when he's like, what? You helped her <laughs> like you were not supposed to do that. That's like the reversal. Like, I, that's I, like that was a really good just uh reveal yeah well it's it's the um it's the why is this movie still going theorem like in any horror movie like after ultimate evil has ostensibly been defeated like you kind of have to wonder like why is this movie still going like the the film that's like prototypical for this is poltergeist where like (laughs) they think that they have totally defeated the evil creature when the like medium is there or whatever and then the house like falls into the pit or something I don't remember the I don't remember the plot of Poltergeist well enough, but like they actually haven't, and it comes back at the very end. Um, but uh, when she comes back and she's like talking to Aiden, like even before he says anything, you're kind of like, okay, so like, why is this movie still on? Like <laughs> something else has still got to happen. This is what a remake should be, I think. Like they took a film that was really successful in Japan recognized what was effective about it um uh took the good things and kind of clarified what was good about them and threw out all the bad things and made like also a really effective uh uh american film i don't know it's it's um it's one of the better pairs i think that that we've watched so far in terms of in terms of like the adaptation itself i agree Alright, well that's our show this week uh, Thanks everybody for tuning in Next week we'll be watching uh, A pair of movies I'm extremely excited for Infernal Affairs, uh, the Hong Kong film From 2002, and The Departed uh, The Martin Scorsese remake from 2006 um, So everyone should watch Those films um, We've received some really great suggestions For our two mystery films um, We'll be choosing between a couple of those But we are still accepting suggestions So if you have anything, email us um, on Twitter, we are at PopCulturalOzmo. You can follow us on Tumblr, and uh, see you next time. Take care. Okay, oh, remind me at the end of the show today, we've got to do an outro like we do the intro.
because I keep coming to the end of the episode and not having a natural end point, and so we're just talking, 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 boom. <laughs> um, what do you? So what do you want to do? Just like hey, we should just do. You know, that's our show for next week. Watch this. Follow us on Twitter. Send us email here. Thanks for listening. Bye. Usually we do do that, though, don't we? Some we always start and then we get distracted. It's like last week we're like, so for next week, watch the ring, and it sounds all good, and then we like go into some really long digression about ed tv or something like that <laughs> and then, like it's like fuck we lost our ending place that actually really does sound like us <laughs> and so then we just kind of i just kind of have to bring the music up some random place so we have to like not just start the like wrap-up time but also finish it with something that sounds like a wrap-up instead of just kind of sliding into <laughs> Some other conversation they're having. (laughs) Or we start talking about when the next time is we can record and like other bullshit that doesn't need to make it into the episode. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Anyway, should we get started? Uh, Yeah. Okay.